0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Channock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Judith Eckerly who will discuss the importance of global assessment when looking at attachment issues. And now your host, Karen Doyle-Buckwalter.
1: Well, hey, everybody out there. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And I am delighted uh, to bring my guest uh, to you all today. This is uh, Dr. Judith Eggerly, and she um, has a practice uh, in pediatrics and adoption medicine. And we are going to be talking to her today about assessment, proper assessment, and that perhaps everything isn't related to attachment as often as we think it is. So it's great to have you here today, Dr. Eggerly.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I mean, and could that.
1: you share with the, the audience just a little bit about your background?
2: Yeah, so um, I'm Dr. Eckerly and I uh, am the director of the adoption medicine clinic at the University of Minnesota. And uh, it started, it was founded by my mentor about 35 years ago, originally seeing internationally adopted children. And then when I became director about five years ago, um, I joined the practice about 15 years ago at this point, and and became director about five years ago. And I realized I was just seeing more and more domestically adopted and foster care children who all had very similar issues as their internationally adopted population. Mm broadened our scope to see many children um, who all, have everything in common in terms of multiple transitions and prenatal exposures and um, a lot of attachment concerns and questions, as well as you know a lot of things in common just about not having a permanent uh, family or home in their early childhood.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. And um, might you be able to define just broadly adoption medicine, like what what that is?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting because even uh, my colleagues in pediatrics sometimes haven't heard of adoption medicine because it is a really small area that I practice in. Uh, But really, it's kind of a, what attracted me to it is one, I I am an international adoptee, so it's very close and dear to my heart to have a personal vested interest in helping these kids and families. Um, But two, um, it's such an interesting mix of different areas of pediatrics. So we do a lot of developmental behavioral peds. We actually train some of the developmental behavioral peds fellows here in our clinic. Um, we see a lot of kids who need psychiatric help um, as well as uh, infectious diseases and um, micronutrient deficiencies and nutritional issues. So it really is a, a wide variety and mix of different areas of pediatrics, which to me makes it really interesting and fun that we see you know lots of different things all the time that we we have to troubleshoot.
1: Yes, yeah, that is that's fascinating. You know, my, My very first podcast interview was with Dr. Jane Aronson, um, who this is especially area of hers. Um, We talked about it in a different way, but. um, Yeah,
2: she was one of my mentors. I trained at Weill Cornell Medical Mm -hmm. Center, and so she was one of my mentors even uh, back in residency. So. Yeah, she's
1: fantastic. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: So, um, so a typical situation for you would be, you know, A parent has adopted a child and they're experiencing like A, B, C. I know it's a really broad range, but what are some of the common things that maybe are presenting problems that people come to you with?
2: Uh, So a wide, wide variety. So most common though, we see parents seek us out because their children are having either behavioral concerns, learning concerns, or attachment concerns, or kind of a mix of all of that. Interestingly though, we're branching out more and more to tell parents both of internationally and domestically adopted kids and foster care kids um, to come and see us whether or not they have big concerns because the problem is, is that we'll see a 13 year old for the first time who has major, major concerns, You know, inpatient psychiatric care and suicidal ideation and you know, some really major things at that point that we really feel strongly we could have addressed so much better when they were four, when parents thought, oh, they're little issues but we're handling it and they're only four years old. Um, and so it didn't seem so big at the time, but can turn into bigger and bigger issues if not addressed. So, you know, a lot of times we'll see parents and they have no no complaints at all. They're just like, either my social worker told me we should come see you or I just heard about you from a friend and we thought we'd come check in. And then we end up addressing, you know, five to 10 things during that visit actually. So it's been wow. a really big.
1: So you're encouraging people to come just almost as a screening. You know, let's just see if there's anything here and we can kind of um, nip it in the bud or provide support or whatever very early on. Now, um, do people uh, come from mainly Minnesota or are, are you able to do people come from all over the country?
2: Uh, So, interestingly, so we do a couple things here at the Adoption Medicine Clinic. We work with a lot of families pre-adoption, actually, um, looking at referral information, what the child's medical needs are or what they've been through in terms of uh, social history or things like that. And then we do counseling with the family about what to potentially expect, how well we feel like the child is doing in context of what they've experienced. And so that we do from literally all over the world, because it's just online or by Skype or email. Um, And so we work with families from uh, all over the country. I would not even say mainly Minnesota, uh, from all over the world and from the U.S. Um, And then in-person, we see kids for clinical services, which is the in-person evaluation that I think a lot of people are more familiar with, where you go to your pediatrician and kind of get a checkup um and but even that i looked a couple of years ago and about 12% of my patient population was from outside of the five state area so um we routinely see people from the coasts i have a patient who flies in every year from germany so i mean it's kind of interesting uh because there aren't that many pediatricians that are really familiar with adoption medicine uh people do seek us out if they feel like they're just not getting the answers that they are looking for or you know they're just seeking some more understanding mhm mhm
1: so would you say What percentage would you guess is referrals from other physicians versus parents who seek you out on
2: their own? So, again, uh, one of the things that we're doing, we're kind of in a growth mode right now. So we're really trying to reach out to more pediatricians and family practice and other, other practitioners to tell them about us. But one of the things I found really interesting is that a lot of pediatricians and doctors actually don't know that we are here or what we do. Like I said, a lot of people don't even know that adoption medicine is a thing. So uh, I would say, you know, just off the top of my head, probably 90% or 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 close to that is really just uh, parent-to-parent referrals, people who are on, you know, uh, Facebook chat groups and are just saying, you know, I went to see this physician and this is what happened. And so other parents are saying that their friend referred them or someone they met, you know, through one of these groups. So a lot of parent-to-parent uh, referrals, actually.
1: Yes, yes, because um, a lot of adoptive parents are, are doing research and seeking answers for their children and, and so I'm, I'm glad that they're finding you. Um, so that's good. So bringing things around to, you know, since we're on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, of course, attachment theory is very important to me and I see myself as a real student of attachment theory and like to bring it um, into work with children, adults, couples, whoever. And we have a wide Range of listeners: um, some working with with adults, some um, with couples, some with children. But what I thought we could look at more carefully today was: I think um, when people are working with children, and they're having too broad of an umbrella of what is what are attachment issues, <laughs> and sometimes as a result of that, trying to. Uh, uh, parent a child in a certain way that they've read about you know that this is therapeutic parenting or this is whatever and there are other things going on with this child that that is either um, at at best not going to help and at worst maybe going to be harmful mm-hmm. um, because this this child's not going to respond to that approach so that a big topic but that is something I wanted to hear some of your perspective on
2: yeah, so I think what has been interesting to me is in the 15 years I've been doing this, at this point, I've worked so closely as a team with multiple members of our team. So we have an occupational therapist who's with me for every visit. We have a pediatric psychologist who is now with us for every visit. Um, and we really function as a team. And so I've worked so closely with them and listened to them and seen what they've seen that um, at this point, we, I think all of us kind of know uh, how to read each other's minds a little bit. Um, and I think that's really the main benefit to coming to see someone who's worked in this area and has multiple perspectives. Because uh, I would say, you know, um, you know, knock on wood, we we are never perfect. But I would say the vast majority of the time, I can walk in the room, talk to the parents for an hour, and I can walk out having a, a pretty good sense for where the actual issues are. And sometimes it's attachment. So clearly. Um, you know, the child just isn't attached, and we're going to need to do other things to help solidify that foundation before they can behaviorally or academically progress. Um, sometimes it's that they have fetal alcohol syndrome, and the parents had no idea, and so they don't really realize the cognitive or the executive functioning of the child. Um, and so we have to then kind of talk to the parents about, you know, before we can attach, you actually have to understand where this child is coming from and how to approach them, um, sometimes it's actually I walk in and the child has a, a syndrome like a genetic syndrome that nobody's either looked at or diagnosed And again, it's not that if we diagnose them or if we fix some other things that everything will be perfect But you know, it can be a real stumbling block to the parents who are like I've been working on attachment for eight years and we just don't feel like we're getting anywhere when nobody's really tested the IQ of this child and the IQ is actually 65 and nobody realized that so they're approaching this child uh, from a cognitively normal perspective and really they need to be approaching it from a much younger age perspective or, you know, emotionally or cognitively. So our job, I feel like, is really just to kind of take a look at the overall picture and say, where are the areas that we feel like really need the most investigation and improvement before you're going to improve that attachment relationship or, you know, whatever the symptoms or whether it's behaviorally or academically or whatever's going on. Um, those things oftentimes won't get better unless we know what's really going on with the child um, as a whole.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So our, our pediatric psychologist, we used to, I knew her from the day I started here, um, and she saw patients and I saw patients. And then about somewhere around six to eight years ago, we started to realize, you know, like she was seeing patients and, and at some point she said, I don't even want to see a patient really unless they've already been screened by you because I can – you know, I can fix a lot of attachment issues. I can fix all of these psychological issues with the family over time. But if they don't have any thyroid level or thyroid hormone working in their body, or if their vitamin D level is undetectable, or if they have a syndrome that nobody's known about, then it'll take me ten times as long to do the work that I could do in one year instead of ten years. Um, and so, you know, it's really become this team approach where we have to fix these other things first or get them clarified before our psychologist or our attachment experts can really take it from there. Mm-hmm.
1: and um, how do you assess attachment in your clinic?
2: Uh, well, that would be a better question for our psychologist
1: right. okay,
2: okay so I'm about attachment, obviously um and it's kind of one of those things where so we had a patient recently I'll change a, a few details to okay to make it anonymous, Absolutely. but uh, we had a five year old little boy who came to us um for, who was in foster care with some foster parents who were first time foster parents were very well-meaning and they really wanted to do their best for this child. Um, But one of their complaints was that, uh, you know, the child follows me around every second and so sometimes I just put him in timeout because I tell him he can't follow me around and I put him in timeout. And um, I think, you know, we did our assessment and physically he looked great and we did our labs and the labs looked fine and, um, you know, we checked out and looked for other syndromes and we checked out the OT for sensory processing and, you know, all those other things, all of them looked great. And so really it was pretty obvious to me that um, the attachment relationship here was not building because the parents didn't understand the traumas that this kid had been through, even though, you know, they go through some of the foster care parent training and things like that. Um, But their interpretation was that he was being annoying or bad because he was following them around all the time. And really, they needed to understand that he was scared and attachment wise, he was just desperately trying to figure out, you know, who in this world he was going to be able to attach to. Um, And so, they worked with our pediatric psychologist and and were really able to come to a great understanding, as well as that, you know, once they understood, then they could address some of the behaviors and put some limits around it so it wasn't constant, you know. Mm -hmm. And so those are the kinds of ways where um, I can at least identify it, I feel like, and say I feel like the attachment piece really is the piece that you'll, you know, need to focus on because OT says, you know, not her, she screened, I'm saying it's not me, we screen for the physical issues. Um, And so it really does leave that piece, which, you know, we're all recognizing is probably a a bigger issue for this child behaviorally. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's where I feel like I can recognize it, even though I'm not necessarily the one then doing that work, caring it for
1: Right. And and, and through a process of of ruling out also that. And that um, with insecure and disorganized attachment, that is actually going to exacerbate it. Like, I'm going to go away, and I'm not going to let you access me. Although we we have have empathy for the parent that says, like, the child's too clingy or or something like this, without fully understanding, no, the child's terrified you're going to disappear. That's different. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think it's... uh, so good to be talking to you because what I have found doing this, I mean, I work at Chaddock in Quincy, Illinois, and I, this has pretty much been my focus, adoption, attachment, working with children in the child welfare system for close to 25 years. And it is hard to get a good comprehensive assessment. Yeah. I I can't tell you how many parents have like uh, you know, shuttled the, the, or their families all over the place and then come to me and say, this didn't even help. This yeah. didn't even make any sense to us. We already knew this, but we needed this. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really unfortunate that... Um, or, or the other thing I hear all the time is, oh, that place is hit or miss. One parent got a great assessment. The next parent felt like it was just useless. And you know, it, it was... I've even had situations where it was cut and paste, and they left some of the other kids' name before in it. You know, so it's like, it's like, and I do understand that there are some general recommendations that might go in every report. But my point is that it's just all over the place, and these parents are desperate to to know, like, where can I go? Who 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 can I really trust with this? What are some of your thoughts about that? Well,
2: um, one is you know they're good and bad doctors, just like they're good and bad of every, you know, profession out there. Yes. So, um, you know, some just, or they're uninformed versus informed. So, you know, there are some that just don't know. I would say one of the biggest problems, though, in foster care and, and adoption is that, one, um, uh, reimbursement is a big issue because almost all of these kids are on MA or have MA secondary. And um, as a an organization, we actually, about five years ago, um, were considering closing our clinic entirely because we could not uh, do the assessments that we felt needed to be done, which is, you know, a team approach with an hour visit or more, and um, we just couldn't stay afloat. So most of the physicians that see these patients see them for 15 or 20 minute visits. They kind of run them through. They talk about seatbelt safety, and all of that is important, but they don't. They just don't have time. I, I don't have time in 20 minutes to figure out what's going on or to do a very thorough assessment. So, um, and but then the other problem was we couldn't afford to do what the assessments that we wanted to do. So we actually partnered with our, our state, um, uh, DHS, who gave us a grant in order to not only stay afloat but expand our services, which was amazing. Um, so I've been actually talking to a lot of other foster care um, and adoption pediatricians about how to also help them to partner with their states or, or other entities or foundations um, because I think it's so important But I think that is one of the biggest issues is that there just aren't that many of us that can or will see these kids for a comprehensive assessment, because reimbursement-wise, it was almost impossible until we found a way to partner both philanthropically and with the state.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is uh, the reimbursement rates um, can be so low. Um, But I will say even some parents that are willing to pay out of pocket have had this similar experience. So um, I think it's so hard to, to get the word out there that this is a specialty area and there are people that can look at it comprehensively rather than piecemeal.
2: Right. Um, there just, there aren't that many clinics in the U.S. that do what we do. There used to be more when the international adoptions were higher and, you know, all of that was pretty much commercial payer, you know, parents who could afford to help uh, pay for the services. And now that it's kind of a mix or, you know, we're actually probably about 60% um, foster care and domestic adoption. Um, it's just the, a lot of the, I would say, you know, probably 75% of the clinics that used to exist have actually closed. Even some of the great um, international adoption clinics have kind of pared down just because the numbers for international adoption are so low. Um, And then they don't typically, or some of them don't typically see the domestic and foster care population. So it it is just a real struggle to access the people in the country who are really doing this on a regular basis um, and really you know, have continuing uh, education and research and all of those things that go along with uh, keeping up with how to help these kids.
1: Is there a way a parent could find like a list of those uh, resources around the country that, that do seem to really uh, specialize in that or not so much?
2: Um, I am just looking. I'm part of an organization um, through the AAP, um, which is a section on adoption and foster care. And they I, I don't know if they have listed on their website um, resource list but i can try to get that to you after the podcast to share with your listeners Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. okay good good so um do you ever find well I do, um, part of my work at Cheddock, I do these in-home intensives where we go in with a family for four or five days and we're kind of there, a team of us around the clock and just really allows us to see a lot of things that you can't see, um, typically in, um, a one hour outpatient therapy session, um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of different dynamics and things like that. And we're usually called in for attachment and trauma issues. Um, but, um, even... Even in the, in, in the last couple months, again, I'll change some details. Um, we worked with a little girl, um, seven, and um, she was, like, switching the order of words and sentences, and she, she uh, had some language delays, and um, she would be able to do things one day and then, like, completely not – like, one day – she she would know the state where she was born, and then the next day she wouldn't know it, Right. Yeah. for example. So I'm looking at this thinking, okay, there's more going on here <laughs> um, than attachment issues and even trauma issues. I mean, right. um, although I recognize one could argue early neglect and things leads to developmental things and developmental trauma disorder. But my point here is that I feel like sometimes parents – um. are are hesitant to hear it something else Hmm. because I think they feel like attachment issues or trauma issues that's fixable like we get the right therapy we get the right support hearing them in 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 a a way that's attachment sensitive versus Mm -hmm. um
2: like fetal alcohol syndrome yeah yeah
1: yeah So do you see that with some of the families you you work with or, or are they more like, oh, this makes so much sense. It's just a relief. Maybe they're both.
2: Well, the parents who come to see me when they schedule, they schedule for a general adoption exam or they schedule for a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder exam, which ends up being very similar exams anyway in time and what we do. Um, but if they're saying they're coming for a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, they're usually at that point ready to hear the diagnosis if if that is what it is. The ones that are trickier are the ones who are scheduling for a more general adoption or foster care eval, and we, you know, I walk in the room and it's just facial features and growth and you know everything is just. Textbook fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and then we do have to start talking to the parents about what that might mean or you know Is that a possibility? That's a harder conversation because sometimes they're they weren't expecting that and they didn't know that wasn't on their radar Um, I will say though and and how I talk to parents when I talk to them about these kinds of issues is that um, Anytime we find something even if it isn't fixable per se so fragile X syndrome is not fixable per se or fetal alcohol syndrome um However, when we do know what's going on, we do know the best way to approach it. And so even things like Fragile X, for instance, um, which is not fixable, quote-unquote, does have new studies going on with a physician out in California who's doing uh, certain targeted medications for these females or, or males who have Fragile X syndrome. So, you know, there are different therapies and different ways to approach it that actually may improve things over time. It may also help them to access more services that the parents aren't able to access if they have a medical diagnosis for the school system or, you know, so there are ways for things to move forward, for sure, if we just have the right diagnosis and we're not continually going down a path where, you know, we're just continuing to say it's attachment, 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 and it may also be attachment, but we're not going to forward even that attachment piece if we don't know what else is going on. So. know we just try to frame it for the parents as you know the more we know the better we can help them and same thing for teenagers sometimes who are trying to wrap their heads around this new diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome or things like that you know a lot of them have known for their whole life that something is different about them and so it's almost a relief to them to hear we figured out what's different and that means that we can help you Mm -hmm. a lot of actually a relief for them to know that you know finally somebody understands them and, and that we can do something about it so even if it's not you know, completely curable, we can, we can
0: help. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at www.thenowledgecenteratchadoc.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts as well as previous episodes, too. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the knowledge center at chaddock.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.